Welcome to the Lubber's Hole, the Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And together we are re-reading the Aubrey Matra novels of our favourite novelist, Patrick O'Brien. Mike, where did we get to last week? What's in store for this week? Oh, thanks, Ian. Yes. Jack last week discovered that Stephen, who we didn't know was Stephen last week, speaks Catalan loves natural philosophy, and is a physician. Learning that he's a physician, he asked Stephen to consider being the Sophie's surgeon. Jack received his orders to convey a bunch of merchant ships along with his new lieutenant, James Dillon, who we discovered may or may not have an Irish connection with Stephen. Mr. Brown, Jack's musical friend, lectured Jack on not wasting nautical supplies, Stephen mourned the loss of an old Irish love and the patient that brought him to Mahan. And the Sophie, as we closed out the chapter, received a bunch of new hands. Now, Jack wants two new cannons and a new main yard. Yeah, me too. Me too, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It was on my Christmas list, right? That's what I told Santa. Oh, well, this time, Jack works to equip the Sophie to meet his needs. So we're, we're back to those needs here. Stephen weighs the decision to become a surgeon on board here. Jack learns more about his new ship as the crew and Lieutenant Dillon try to figure out their new captain. Now, there's opera, bodilization, nautical innovation, and some of our favorite phrases packed into a very long day. Yeah. And we're still only in chapter two. It's amazing. Right. Meanwhile, Mike, before we get further into chapter two, before we get deeper into this long day for Jack and the crew of the Sophie, we wanted to share a guest interview with you. We got together with our old friend James Albright to talk about the natural historical world, the natural philosophical world that has been at the front of Stephen's mind already in this chapter and is going to play a big part in the rest of the book. We're really happy to welcome back to the show today our old friend James Albright. Um, James works by day as an environmental specialist, um, but his background is in biology and he, with a master's in evolution and ecology. James, it seems like you're you're our guy for natural history and Stephen Matcherin might even say natural philosophy. Is that fair? That's perfect. <laughs> Thanks and welcome <laughs> to the show. <laughs> back earlier in the book, we have Stephen Matcherin flashing out the, the the Latin name of the hoopo, and, and he mentions Linnaeus. Tell us a little bit about Linnaeus and the role that he plays, and how that fits into all this naming and discovery of species. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, ultimately, you think all human cultures have made efforts to classify things, uh, and you know whether they're hunter gatherers or different complex uh, city dwelling societies, and um, we all want to have a handle on things. So in the Western tradition, it kind of goes back as the root is in Aristotle with mm-hmm. the, his uh, scala naturae, the, the ladder of nature, uh, where he ranked things. And the approach he used, well, he was kind of just looking at different characters and, and lumping things together. But um, one thing that his followers took from him uh, was his logical approach, where it was this kind of dichotomization. Mm-hmm. So you'd have... 
is it this or this? Is it this or this? And you could work down from the top to the more specific. And that's the classification that was handed down through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And you had this tradition of herbalists and encyclopedists who were trying to, just for utility, lump all these different plants and animals uh, together so in one place, often just kind of listed alphabetically. But sometimes they would try to lump them on, on different features. They were often using, because, you know, Latin was the the language of scholarship. So they would often use kind of descriptive names, which would kind of later evolved into the shorter species scientific names. One of the things that actually is mentioned by, by Matron, he -hmm. talks about John Ray and Francis Willoughby who went and did an, a 17th century expedition across Europe. Uh, Willoughby was more on the animal side, looking at he's an ornithologist, an ichthyologist, and Ray was more of a botanist. And sadly, Willoughby died young. Ray actually completed both of their publications. And it was some of the earliest real rigorous attempt to try and come up with a classification system. And what we're trying to do today in our modern classification systems post-Darwin is to try and reflect the common ancestry to a degree, which of course was not part of the idea there. They were just trying to see what God's pattern, you know, like he had like this plan and we're trying to reflect the plan. It's kind of natural theology point of view. So then moving on to Linnaeus, Linnaeus was a rock star in the 18th century. Wow, He was like one of the most famous naturalists, Carl von Linné originally. He Latinized his name. Actually, they, uh, it's kind of funny that I guess they, Ray also changed his name because he was originally spelled the W, but he went to spelling it with an R uh, without the W. But Linnaeus was a, a botanist who did a number of publications, including his Systema Naturae. And it's the system that, that really caught on. He had a ranked system with kingdom, phylum, class. He didn't have families and orders uh, yet, but his kingdoms included animal, vegetable, mineral. Mm -hmm. So he was putting in things that weren't living into his uh, classification system. But, you know, he was trying to apply these techniques to, to organize things. And he was particularly interested in the genus. He was focused on the genus level, which is, you know, when we think about today, we think of species as being the fundamental unit because they are biologically integral. If you look at Ernst Meyer's species definition, they are units that can, that cannot interbreed with other species. But a genus is a clustering of closely related species. Now for Linnaeus, that was the fundamental unit that he created as this natural unit. And everything else was kind of, he expressed as artificial above that. So it caught on. That was the system that was used. Once we moved to a more evolutionary idea, they had to kind of kludge it together. Mm. But yeah, I mean, he's still considered the father of, of uh, taxonomy. Wow. So we've had a couple of uh, Latin names for species already. We've had Upupa Epops the Hupo in chapter mm-hmm. one, and we've had Bolitus edulis, right. the, uh, the, the set mushroom in chapter two. Right. Uh, how, how do those fit in? Are they pre pre Linnaean, post Darwinian, something else? Uh, well, so uh, let's see. Upopa apops, I believe, 
that was originally described. So the description of a species is when we first describe a species, we put the characters and we connect it to a type specimen. And it wasn't quite as formalized back then. So I'm not sure on who originally described uh, the hoopo. By by the way, it it appears as though the two parts of the name have some origin in being onomatopoeic. They're partly partly recalling the call of the the bird. Yes, yes, I do remember that, yeah. But the uh, the bolets, the mushrooms, that's a weird one because uh, the genus Boletus is actually was something that Linnaeus came up with. Mm-hmm. So the text actually says, you know, Linnaeus is Boletus edulis. But then he actually didn't describe that species. He described, he created the genus. And he just created it as this kind of big catch-all. It was all mushrooms which had pores instead of gills, which is a big hodgepodge. Wow. It was actually described by Pierre Bouillard in 1782. And the, the name just means mushroom edible. So oh. it can be it. <laughs> it can it be it. Can be it. <laughs> <laughs> A great O'Brien mushroom. <laughs> in the discussion between Aubrey and Matron in chapter mm. two, Jack is telling Stephen that he's made such good use of his childhood. And Stephen, you know, kind of vehemently disagrees because he missed all this opportunity for natural studies in this area in Catalonia where he was growing up. So uh, you want to tell us a little bit about some of the things that Stephen's referring to there? Sure. Yeah. He does a a bit of name dropping. He references Ray and Willoughby, who we spoke about in, in terms of their contributions to classification. They had, Willoughby specifically, had gone through Spain and had done an early survey, but that was from over 100 years prior. So since then, no naturalists had really dug in. Maturin names drops Peter Pallas, who was a Prussian naturalist, uh, famous for an expedition to Russia. Uh, David Solander, who was a Swedish naturalist and a student of Linnaeus. And then he also references the Melins family, a G-M-E-L-I-N-S, a very big family, German family in terms of 18th century science, medicine, chemistry. The ones he specifically seems to be referencing are the elder who would accompany Vitus Bering on the, the Kamchatka expedition, and then the younger Melin who probably was involved in the expedition to Persia. to collect specimens for Linnaeus, actually. Wow. Stephen also talks about his own contributions and and modestly and references his work in Ireland and talks about the phanerograms of Upper Ossery, which is, uh, I believe, in Kilkenny. And the phanerogram is? (laughs) Yeah, phanerogram is uh, what we would call today a spermatophyte. So... A spermatophyte is a seed-bearing land plant. Phanerogram just refers to the reproductive organs, which is what this is focusing on. So phaneros is just visible, and gramma means marriage. They also reference cryptograms, which are ones which have hidden reproductive parts. And that actually was something that was a focus of botanists. Like Linnaeus was very focused on reproduction. He... Erasmus Darwin, Charles's grandfather, actually was a little bit considered racy for his salacious poetry about plant reproduction. Uh, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit risque for the time. 
Well, these days, I'm sure there's somewhere on the internet where people are kind of downloading that kind of stuff, but who knows? <laughs> and I'm sure O'Brien would have been, you know, richly mining that for some of his little jokes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Listening to you, James, it sounds like this marriage of, you know, natural philosophers and the world of the Navy, um, a very much a, a thing at that time. Oh, yeah. The, certainly the opportunity to see all these new species. That was one of the things, too, when I, I referenced the 17th century age of discovery era with encyclopedists and herbalists moving towards more rigorous kinds of classification. Part of the reason for that was just the explosion in number of known species. Ah. So like in around 1600, there were, what, about 6,000 known species of plants. Mm -hmm. And by the, the end of the century, it was double that. Mm. So... They were very quickly accumulating large numbers of species. They had to try and figure out how they'll fit together. And they were also thinking about it in this kind of idea of God's plan. Like when you looked at people like Newton, the physicists were doing in the 17th century, it was very much, we're discovering these natural laws that give us some idea of God's plan and but for the universe. So the um, people on the biological side wanted to uncover the same sort of things. I wondered, do you know a little bit about O'Brien and his naturalist interests? I mean, you know, we see him writing in his kind of Norton newsletter early in his first visits to the U.S. He's so excited about his opportunities to go birding, but he's not just a birder. He seems to have a deeper interest in this and certainly a great knowledge. Any idea about Brian's background or his interest in this? I don't, actually. I, I mean, it's, it's apparent that he is very passionate and interested. He did write a biography of Sir Joseph Banks. Yeah. And that one certainly was a, a marriage of his interest in the era, his interest in the sailing, and of course, in, in natural history, because Banks, of course, famously made his name accompanying uh, Cook on the HMS Endeavor and was you know, head of the Royal Society for, for And a by long the way, time. you've probably heard us mention it in the show. We'd, we, we've noticed that his first and very famous musical reference was a little bit wider than Mark. His first natural history references have been absolutely spot on and really, really deep in their associations. Uh, there, there's a few things. I, I noticed the beautiful scene in, in chapter two where he talks about Matron waking up with this kind of evocative smell and he's thinking of, of a woman. Right. But it turns out he just had been lying on Dianthus. And Dianthus is a real genus, uh, yeah. as described by Linnaeus originally. It's a very widespread, the pinks. Right. But the actual species per fragrance, I can't find any reference to that as, as, an, as a real species. Oh, oh well done, James. So it's yeah. kind of fun that, uh, you know, in those early chapters, you know, Ian with a background in music and you're, you're spotting one out, James with your background, you're spotting another. But he writes it so well, which... I think goes back you know, to the point I think we always make so much to say, have fun. There's some of this stuff that is oh, yeah. fascinating to dig into. And there's some of it, it's just like warp drive. I mean, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't have to exist. We're just, you know, it's it's a creation of the world. You know, what a great name. To, you know, that's what I would oh, call yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, scientific name. It's quite quite plausible. I just haven't been able to find it. Reference right. To fascinating. Uh, kind of like this Tudor Aubrey. Aubrey, I, you know, they, there's no... There is no giant tortoise of that name. <laughs> There's several other biological references in chapter two. Like he references uh, Tapenoma uh, erraticum, 
described by Luttrell in 1789, which is the erratic ant. Um, and he, he talks about their behavior in a very authentic fashion. They're, they do behave foraging kind of erratically. And he talks about them kind of almost as if like Stevens is kind of annoyed by them. And they kind of go along with their, hold their abdomens high up in the, the air. And they're a, a common European ant. And he talks about the splendid toad, which I assume has to be the the Balearic green toad. Because one thing about islands, this is kind of a thing about island bi- biogeography in terms of where plants and animals are distributed. You often have a depauperate herpetofauna, a, a lack of amphibians and, and, and certain reptiles on islands because how do they get there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, Interesting. Yeah, they can either ride somewhere. If an island breaks apart, it's called vicariance. But if you have a new surface of land out far away, it can be really hard, especially for something like a toad that cannot live in the salt water to get there. So the hypothesis uh, in this case is that dispersal was humanated, that people mm-hmm. brought okay. these toads to the island, probably from Italy originally. Stephen talks about the plants there and the climate and how the recent years has been very dry right. and, and how does the toad survive so well. He talks about the caper bushes and he's even mentioning things like you know, gladiolus plant, uh, snakeskin. Again, you know, not very many reptiles, probably the ladder snake. There's only like three species of snakes that I could find in, on Menorca. They mentioned the birds too, of course, yeah. uh, particular favorites of, of Matron. So we've got the black weed ear, uh, which I've seen, and they're very beautiful bird of cliffs and rocky slopes and, mm. and mountainous areas. And of course, he references seeing smaller eagles. I'm guessing it's probably a booted eagle. They're very small. It also could be uh, Benelli's or another species of, of eagle in that area. But that's all just in like this one tiny, that's like one, one page. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> just a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. 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 So thanks very much, James. I'd, Thank you, guys. I wanted to ask you what you're up to nowadays. What's ahead for 2022? On my part, I'm still working for the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. Thank um, you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's appreciated. It's, uh, it's very important work. We work in the, the Total Maximum Daily Load Program. So that's actually something that comes out of the Clean Water Act for waters that are found to be impaired. We do modeling and determine how much the pollutants incoming need to be reduced in order to restore the natural designated uses of the the water, uh, being Mm -hmm. fishable, swimmable, that sort of thing. And so that's what what I've been working on, and that's what I'm still doing. It's kind of exciting. Well, James, listen, thanks very much. It's been really, really great to have you on the show. Thank you once again for joining us, and we we wish you a successful 22, and uh, we hope we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Awesome. I'm always happy to come on if you ever get... Get, want to go into obscure bits of taxonomy it's a lot of fun awesome uh, fantastic all right thanks guys appreciate it thank you boy i i really love talking to james albright and um, you know i learn about a dozen new things every time which brings us back again so when we stopped last week jack's boat had just pulled up at the shore of the ordnance yard what happened next well jack's in fix-it mode um 
he's held back a little bit though because he's got to take take precedence he's got to got to stand in his due place in the line he's behind several captains who are queuing up including captain middleton whose interest whose personal connections had allowed him to get command of this virtuous a french privateer that jack's pretty sure should have been his anyhow middleton is there he tells jack that mr head who runs the ordnance yard is to use his Great phrase here, selling off all his stock like a fishwife at the end of the fair. Because Head is due to be placed under Mr. Brown, who we've heard of before as well, who runs the rest of the dockyard. Jack had heard this somewhere else. Now, Middleton, with a pinch of conscience, who I guess can see that Jack is kind of hopping from one foot to the other, hot to be on his way. Middleton gives way and says Jack can go before him. And we're as surprised as Jack is to be suddenly at the front of the line here. Jack tells this guy, Mr. Head, that he'd like to try some new hardware, specifically two long 12-pounders, cannons, to go aboard the Sophie as chasers. And Head um, has some reasons to be doubtful. Sophie's only a small brig. He checks to be sure that Jack knows how much they weigh, these guns. And Jack says he does, and he's aware that they're pretty big and pretty powerful for the ship. And he says he's going to try it anyway to see if the timbers will stand it. And Head says knock yourself out have a dozen captain if you feel she will bear them they are yours then and upon your own head be it and jack says thank you and thinks to himself well i wish the rest of the service could be run this way and mr head joins in this little reflection on the the nature of the royal navy life so do i captain so do i cried mr head his face growing suddenly dark with passion there are some slack-ass bloody-minded men flute playing, fiddle-scraping, present-seeking, tail-bearing, double-poxed hounds that would keep you waiting about for a month. But I am not one of them. Mike, I I don't think it's a secret that he's referring to this other guy, Brown, here, who's the one whose duets Jack wants to borrow. But there's clearly not a lot of love last between Brown and Head here in the yard. No, there certainly is not. But, you know, Jack's thrilled. He's got this, you know, expeditious Mr. Head moving them right along there. And he takes the paper that Mr. Head gives him and takes it to the Master Parker, the man who's going to be in charge of actually, you know, trundling out these cannons for Jack. And at first, the Master Parker is very helpful. And then all of a sudden, he has a vast number of reasons why it's really going to take some time to get them. And he leaves Jack waiting. And Jack is really, you know, upset now he's you know he's kind of going from foot to foot he's looking at his watch constantly looking at the sophie which is right there close to shore ready for the cannon sees that men are starting to get drunk you know anytime they're this close to shore that's temptation and he needs to get out on this trial cruise early to be back in time to lead the convoy tonight you know he's frustrated and then he realizes as he puts it that he forgot the oil And Jack calls the Master Parker over, right, says that he forgot to, quote unquote, anoint the cannons. And he privately puts a gold piece on each of the cannons touch holes and apologizes for having forgotten. Now, the Master Parker smiles broadly, thanks him, tells him, you know, it's always been the custom and he doesn't want to see the old ways die. And he'll have (laughs) Jack's cannon swung onto the Sophie in five minutes time. (laughs) He does. Petty corruption. You've got to love it, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Petty corruption and, you know, the custom of the way things work in certain places. I, I remember, you know, decades and decades and decades ago, I was working in India 
And, you know, my consulting partner's wife, uh, you know, we'd gotten word back home in the States. She was really sick. And he left headed, you know, back across India to the airport to get back to the States as quickly as possible. But, you know, I got a call a couple hours later that he had a ticket and he was waiting to get placed on a plane. He was really kind of panicked. I could I could see Jack in him now reading this story and, you know, remembering where we were. I said, you know, has he have you tipped anybody yet? And he called back minutes later to say he's on board, upgraded to first class and ready to take off. Uh. <laughs> got to anoint those cannons. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, I, I remember in the chat that we had with Gord Lacker many, many episodes ago, he was he was talking about this as a, as a real thing, even in his time uh, as a serving officer, that, you know, there are moments where you might have to grease a few wheels ashore to get what you need as an enterprising captain. Right. <sighs> now, we, we understand why Jack had to pledge that ever-elastic credit yeah, <laughs> to get yeah, ready to go out. Uh-huh. But it's, and it's early in the day, so he, he's not yet done. I wonder how much deeper he's going to have to reach into his pocket. I wonder how much more resourceful he's going to have to be. Well, let's see. Um, everyone is watching how these guns are going to go aboard the Sophie to see if the timbers can take the weight. And O'Brien does a really nice job bringing us right there with it. We get the creaking and the groaning. Uh, first of all, it appears that it's not too bad. And the main problem is that there's not enough room for these guns and all these people on this small ship. And there's a slightly comic situation of just how difficult it is to get these guns into place. Jack backs up. He takes a step or two backwards from the gun and we get this really comic little interlude described in very low-key way of all these people stepping back and bumping into each other, bumping into each other. A chain reaction resulting, as the text says, in the maiming of one ship's boy and very nearly in the watery death of another. It's really funny, but a little bit of a comment about the cheapness of life, but it's like, Jack is in authority and he's miles away from some of the consequences that his actions have on some of these people. Nicely put. Yeah. So he wants to get this cannon secured quickly. He's about getting the breaching all kind of tied up there. Um, If the ship rolls and the untied cannon should roll with it, it could drop through the open hatch and that's the end of the Sophie. Um, So he's in a big hurry to get this all tied up and squared away. And we have this interesting little dialogue here, Mike between Jack and the bosun about a particular kind of splice. Right, right. right. I, I, I shudder to remember it. <laughs> well, Jack says, to preserve our non-explicit rating, we're going to use the uh, the polite form of the word without the N in it, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? So Jack says, a simple thing like a cut splice will not take a man of war's bosun long. And this is Patrick O'Brien playing with his love of potty humor and our sensitivity about language. The cut splice, in fact, originally was called a very different word with the, with the N in it. I think we all know what we're talking about. It's typically used for really, really tight lines, like the log line, where one single splice um, would tend to come undone when the rope is frequently wet. Um, it makes a very strong knot. Um, a cut splice is a join between two ropes where the side splicing ends up with the sides of the, of the splice slightly apart, so there's like an eye or an opening in the joined rope. And it's really fascinating. Sailors in the 18th century would have called this its original, to our ears now, pretty offensive name. By the time we get to the 19th century, people, e- even in regular naval life, are referring to this in its politer form as a cut splice. And Mike, it's funny, isn't it? But there's this process of fiddling with the language, if you like, that was playing to people's sensitivities all the way through the 19th century. Yeah, this is, and, and Ian, I, I have to admit, this is new to me. Uh, you know, I know that people change language and they, you know, put little characters in to leave out vowels and things, but I had never 
heard about the, you know, the actual formal name for this, but it was in this definition of this knot, <laughs> which was great. So it was boulderized um, or, you know, uh, expurgation, I guess, is is the other one. This idea of taking a, a written work and censoring it to take anything that's you know deemed to be noxious or offensive out of it. Uh, Thomas Bowler, you know, eighteen eighteen is you know has kind of edited one of Shakespeare's plays, and this is where this starts, and it has this long history going down. You know, one of one of the great ironic exceptions that stood out for me, you know, Ray Bradbury had this great book, Fahrenheit 451, all yeah. about the burning of books, you know, that people are kind of censoring and burning books. And sure enough, Valentine Books, you know, boulderized his book. They changed, you know, they changed terrible things like the words hell and damn. Yeah. He, he had described a drunk man and they called him a sick man. You know, um, somebody had talked about cleaning the fluff out of a navel and they went, no, 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 not, you know, not a belly button here. <laughs> we'll clean the fluff out of an ear. So you know, Bradbury, of course, learning about this got was very upset and required them to change it back again. Wow. It seems to me, I don't know, I don't think I've read anything about it, but it seems to me that this kind of bodlerizing attitude to language is the kind of thing that Patrick O'Brien would have really, really been disgusted with. I think he, he first of all, he enjoyed the knowing that we were authentic in speaking and writing in the way that people spoke and wrote in this period. And I think he likes playing with our our, our visceral reactions to language anyway he does all these really obscure tricks with sometimes you know dashing out curse words and sometimes adding them back in and he's really playful with that uh and i think he's making uh making a little joke here by drawing our, our attention to this really really to modern ears really distasteful name for this this not right right uh and reminding us that that's the world that he's in and he's not going to bodlerize stuff and uh good on you yeah yeah this is uh, it's the humor is one of the things we love about Patrick O'Brien, and it's it's fun to walk up to this precipice where we think, uh oh, even I can't go there right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, well done. So, you know, in in the midst of all this, Jack has remembered that he's agreed to meet Stephen for dinner, and he's thinking, gosh, this is all taking so much time. So he takes young midshipman Moet, the the master's mate, and asks him, you know, he knows where Hosalita's coffee house is, so he says, you know, go find this Stephen Matron and let him know that we won't be back by dinner, but we'll be happy to pick him up, you know, whenever he tells us this evening. So, um, and O'Brien, I love it the way, you know, we've talked about how he connects paragraphs and he said, indeed, they're not back by dinner because they haven't even left by dinner. <laughs> it's logically impossible. And they're slowly sweeping out of the harbor. And this, Ian, this was just an amazing kind of picture of my mind is, is to see the Sophie with a bunch of oars here. So I, I'd love to know, you know, I think we're going to come back to that again in this book. You know, so we'll have to come yeah. back to this picture. At, at the risk of reusing a phrase that we've used many times before, these might be Chekhov's oars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, these sweeps are the name for, for very long oars used in a, in a relatively full-size ship like a brig. Uh, for actually rowing the ship like they wouldn't have anything very fancy they'd just get these long old oars just like a galley um not very many i think there were four or five aside on the sophie and maybe put them through the gun ports um and you know several men at a time on the on the loom of each oar slowly 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 paddling this brig out of the harbor 
not easy to do, not really physically possible to do on a big multi-deck ship like a ship of the line, but on a cute little ship like a brig, it's a possible extra way to get yourself maneuvered in light winds, to get yourself maneuvered at close quarters. So it's a thing. Ah, nice. Well, and, and maybe it was a little easier now with these new cannon because she's pretty low in the water. <laughs> yeah, the good way, point. Right? And, yeah. and, you know, Jack has himself taken out in a boat and he's he's kind of being rowed all around her to completely check her out. You know, we know that this is, this is the way Jack is. He's always surveying the situation, understanding it. So as he's doing this... He's kind of wondering, you know, how is she going to handle with all this weight? And he's thinking about his ship and his crew. And then he's thinking, you know what? You know, I really should have all the women sent ashore. And when I send the men to dinner here in a minute, because we're, you know, we're just getting out, I could do that. We could do a clean sweep of the whole thing. We could do another sweep tonight and we'll have it all done. But he's still thinking to himself, but the crew really is lacking zeal right now. And he doesn't want them to become sullen. <laughs> sullen will hear a couple times in this chapter, this, you know, kind of bad tempered sulky. And, you know, especially on this test cruise, he wants to see what everybody can do and, and not have them worried about this. And, and Jack says, or, or Brian tells us, sailors were as conservative as cats. <laughs> we know that one, the cat owner. Yeah. And he knew very well they would put up with an incredible labor and hardship to say nothing of danger, but it had to be what they were used to or they would grow brutish. So, boy, Jack got a reminder of that with the Master Parker this morning, and he doesn't want to repeat of that now with his crew. So as Jack is processing what he might be able to do with these cannons and processing exactly how his crew seem to be behaving and thinking about what's it going to take to get them to move things along, he comes back aboard. He, he delays dinner to take advantage of the wind. They send the new crew members below and they make sail out of Mahon Harbour as men in other ships watch them. So this is Jack's kind of maiden moment where he's going to drop anchor and sail away, sail out of the inlet that is Mahon Harbour. As the book says, he's within sight of all of his peers and all the rest of the kind of professional navy around them. He goes through these orders to get the ship underway, and he exchanges a little glance here with Lieutenant Dillon. They're both thinking, well, how is this going to play out? Are we going to look stupid? And actually, in the end, it's not bad. It's okay, not fantastic, but not disgraceful. At least they know they're not going to get an earful of catcalls and abuse from the other ships lining the harbour. And O'Brien uses this nice metaphor that he uses many times to talk about ships making sail. He talks about as the Sophie spreads her wings. Um, and we get this beautiful kind of poetic image of the, the, the Sophie breaking into sail and sailing off down the harbour. Meanwhile, ashore, though, Stephen Matcher is not really sure what's going on. He's been left behind. And I think, Mike, he's, he's a bit put out by this spectacle. Yeah, it, it, there's this great little scene where, he, you know, he hasn't quite realised it yet. And, you know, he's shown up for dinner. He's, he's a little bit excited, we find out. And, and he asked this naval officer, you know, which ship is the Sophia? And the man says, well, do you mean the sloop Sophie? And Stephen, I think with, with a, a great little insight into his character, as we know and love him, says, well, that may well be the case, sir. No man could easily surpass me in ignorance of naval terms. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the man tries to point out the Sophie. Stephen kind of gets it confused with lots of other ships. And, and finally, Stephen says, you, you mean that small squat merchantman with two masts? And the man laughs and says, yeah, yeah, um, right. That's, that's her not doing a really smart job of raising her 
sails. But now she's going to make it out of the harbor easily. And as you say, you know, Stephen is just shocked. He's like, what, what do you mean? She's sailing away? And, you know, O'Brien tells us that Stephen had met with Mr. Flory. Uh, you know, Flory had convinced him that uh, Jack's offer was legitimate, that Stephen would be a really good surgeon. He'd given Stephen the equipment he'd need until his official supplies arrived and loaned him some books about naval maladies. And, you know, as he's standing there, O'Brien writes, Stephen had allowed his mind to convince itself entirely and the strength of his emotion at the sight of the Sophie, her white sails and her low hull dwindling fast over the shining sea, showed him how much he'd come to look forward to the prospect of a new place and new skies, a living and a closer acquaintance with his friend who was now running fast towards the quarantine island behind which he would presently vanish. And again, as you say, this is not sitting well. No, it's not. We, even though I think if, if we've read the text carefully, we've realized that Jack has set things in place that he's going to be back. But it's a very far hope to think that Stephen's kept a hold of that. He was already having doubts about whether the offer of a place aboard the Sophie was serious. And he sees the Sophie herself sailing away with apparently no communication from Jack. And I'm like, I'm, re- I'm with him. Like, oh, man, that must be really, really disheartening. Um, the days running away from Jack, maybe despite his great plans, Jack is going to stay out there all day. And maybe Stephen's just going to have to give up. Maybe, Mike, it's it's only the fact that we know these are called the Aubrey Maturin novels that we still hold out hope at this moment that Stephen's right. going to stay in the story somehow. And the, the, the text says that he lets, as O'Brien calls it, he lets all his dis- defenses disperse. He's, he's, he's reassembling his defenses, getting his, his mood and his optimism back together, calling out his reserves. And he walks by Joselito's coffee house. Uh, he had not gone there earlier. He didn't have enough money for coffee. Remember, he's he's penniless. He's been abandoned by the uh, the patient that he was uh, accompanying who had died. And he had been forced to choose, basically, between having a coffee and finding a boat to take him out to the Sophie. Right. And who should come along but Midshipman Moat? And f- f- first of all, we love James Moat. He's going to be in the story all the way through. Second of all, Stephen's first unguarded response to James Moat is a little flash of the Stephen that we're all going to know and love. Moat runs after him and calls Dr. Maturin and stopped short, quite shocked by the pale glare of reptilian dislike. However, he delivered his message and he was relieved to find that it was greeted with the far more human look. And we just get this little flash of Stephen, the cold-hearted, calculating badass that we all know he's going to turn into. And James Moat's got a flash of it as well. So it's a great moment. So, ha, Moat goes away relieved Stephen Maturin agrees that he's going to meet Jack at the Crown Steps at 6pm. That's quite late in the day. He thanks Moat and goes off to help Mr. Flory with an operation. And this is a moment now for Stephen Maturin in a slightly more happy mood to look forward, in his case, to look forward to helping out with a surgical operation. He says, it is a great while since I felt the grind of bone under my sore. And he's smiling with the anticipation about this. Well, another insight, I think, in uh, Stephen Maturin very different from the just generally good-natured, happy-to-have-help guy. Very different from just the stumbling, naval, kind of ignorant lubber. Very different from the passionate natural philosopher as well. There's a piece of cold steel at his heart there, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to have you know, thought, you know, I've had all these disappointments. I can't take another one. And like you said, you know, reassembling his defenses and his reserves. And then 
hey, no, no, it's all going to work out. And boom, he's right back. But, you know, we watched that. Ah, that was something. Well, as as Stephen is back with the wind in his sails and rolling along, the Sophie is doing the same thing. She's kind of passed by the island. Uh, and now she's getting the full wind. And Jack wants to see how close she'll sail to the wind. Uh, and, and the master says, you know, clearly not as close today because of all this weight at the front. So, you know, Jack was worried about the crew turning sullen. Now the ship is essentially turned sullen because of this weight <laughs> here. And, and Jack, he steps up and takes the wheel himself. You know, he really wants to feel this ship and, and, you know, be directly in contact with it. And when he does so, his hat blows off. And the masker just dashes out of it. Marshall grabs it, wipes it with his handkerchief, and kind of supplicating, brings it back, offering it to Jack with both hands. And and there's this little fascinating thing where one crew member, you know, all of a sudden we've jumped off to somebody else. One crew member says to another, old Sodom and Gomorrah is sweet on Goldilocks. Now, he <laughs> says that O'Brien tells us no moral judgment here, but, you know, his mate says, well, I hope he don't take it out of us too much. That's all, mate. You know, he replies to him. Ah, Ian, what you know, what do you make of this here? Well, I, th- I think it's another little pointer towards the fact that the crew is quite conservative and they've had quite an easy life and they've got their three-watch system and they've got their cozy little brig. And the person who really governs their sailing life is the sailing master. And if the sailing master is suddenly going to have taken a shine to Captain Albury and begin to try and ginger them up into you know, great heights of performance, that's going to mean a harder life for them than they've had in the past. And I think they're just a bit wary about that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And Jack gets a great chance here, I think, himself to get in contact with, get in touch with Sophie as a as a live sailing vessel. I, I love this description of the Sophie sailing down the harbour of Mahon and around the headland and into the wind. It feels really authentic to me. It feels like Patrick O'Brien's been on the deck of a small sailing ship. I, I suspect maybe he hadn't. I suspect right. he's just picked this up from, you know, really atmospheric writing by other people. But it's really beautifully put. Um, Jack, we hear, um, let her pay off until the flurry was over. That means he eases the sheets and he- steers the boat's head away from the wind a little bit to ease the pressure. Then as he began to bring her back, his hands strong on the spokes, so he came into direct contact with the living essence of the sloop, the vibration beneath his palm, Something between a sound and a flow came straight up from her rudder and it joined with the innumerable rhythms, the creak and humming of her hull and rigging. And it's a very, very nice first-person description of what it's like having your hand on the rudder or the steering wheel of a, of a sailing ship. feels really authentic to me. Nice. With his first feeling, his first contact with the ship complete, Jack now feels that it's a good time to send the crew to their dinner. And he's sitting alone. And once again, we get this idea of the loneliness of command. There's no one with whom he can share all of his observations. He realizes at this moment, this is his first formal sit-down meal as captain. And Aubrey says to himself, I shall grow used to it in time. And looked again with his loving relish at the sea. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And and I have this, you know, this... This picture in my mind, you know, in Master and Commander, the movie, we've got these great scenes of looking, you know, kind of into Jack and Stephen in this cabin on a different ship, but through these big, broad back windows. And, and he's got smaller, but this back windows across you know, the back of this ship. And he's looking out thinking, I can eat. I can watch the sea that I love. And, you know, ah, I kind of I want to be there. <laughs> 
it's really lovely, isn't it? Put 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 us right in the situation with him. Yeah. Um, so now that the brig is at sea and Jack is fed and the crew is fed, we can get on with our working day. And that means testing the guns, first of all. They try the guns, first of all, with a half-filled cartridge, so half the load of black powder. Um, after the third shot, the carpenter runs up on deck, begging, supplicating Jack, saying, please, please stop. The boat can't take it. The planks are sprung with making water in five different places. And Jack is very upset by this scene. He thinks this is very undignified, very unprofessional for the Navy. The supplicating carpenter kind of crawling around on all fours on the deck. Um, Jack, despite his disappointment, agrees with the assessment. These 12-pounders are too much for the poor old Sophie, and the planks can't take it. And he's vexed that his first scheme to upgrade the hardware of the Sophie hasn't paid off. He looked, he says then, with even greater malignance at the main yard. They'd been tacking into the wind. They'd worn once. And this is Jack thinking, now, what can I do next to keep going with my upgrade plan? Now, for the crew, that's something that they're doing on a full stomach. For you and me and our listeners, Mike, I think we might want to go and get some refreshment ourselves before Jack puts before the wind and we see how the rest of his experiment on the Sophie pans out. What do you say? Great idea. Well, we'll be right back then after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. Hope you're refreshed. And Jack is refreshed here, although a bit disappointed, but he decides to learn a little bit more about the ship. So we rejoin him. He's down in his cabin reading through the Sophie's logbook, her record of the ship's days. And it has all the usual, you know, these kind of short notations about the navigation and the weather and how they sailing the ships they'd met what went on that day you know are they escorting the convoy reading the articles of war having divine service all the discipline that's imposed and jack's kind of surprised to see that there's a good bit more flogging than he expected you know thinking that they were kind of a lax thing but it's not heavy not he says you know what you call that that hundred lash stuff you know they're you know floggings for drunkenness and contempt but he then goes on to say, okay, so he puts the log book aside, starts to read the muster book, the list of all the ship's company, you know, in this history over time, all the people coming and going, their advancements, their deaths. Um, and his vision once again gets drawn to this beautiful stern window here. And he realizes all of a sudden that he can now do whatever he wants. He can look at the sea and go to sleep. You know, he can do anything because he's got all this privacy. He's never had this on a ship before. But at the moment, he realizes what he's really longing for is human company. And he returns to the deck at Four Bells. Oh, Jack, the, ever the extrovert, ever the extrovert. His energy comes from being in contact with other humans. Bless him. Now, as he appears on quarter deck, his, his company, as it turns out, to begin with is Dylan and the master, who are there obviously discussing the rigging. And there's a, a really slight note of disappointment for extrovert Jack as Dylan and the master respectfully move over to the leeward side of the quarter deck and they leave him in peace. He's actually pleased with this whole situation, I think. And then he realized that he had no companion 
unless he called one over. So he's, if, if he wants some company, he's going to have to kind of make that happen for himself. Meanwhile, he's got all the ship's rigging to look at. He's looked at the ship's performance to evaluate. Um, he made some mental notes about the rigging and ordered the crew to bear up, which in this case I think means head, head downwind. They've been tacking upwind. Now they're going to turn back towards Mahon and sail downwind again. Um, he orders them to set the square mainsail and change course. Significantly here, Dylan asks, should it be double reefed? And Jack says, no, no reef at all. And he resumes pacing the quarter deck. Now, Jack's heart is beating fast, and it might not be super obvious as to why his heart's beating fast. But Mike, let me let me see if I can um, try and figure out what's going on here. Excellent. His, his, his first attempt at a hardware upgrade was the 12-pounder cannons. They didn't work. He's got something that he wants to achieve with this main yard and the mainsail. He didn't have to work very hard to get the cannon. They were available for him as long as he remembered to anoint them with a gold coin. The, the getting of them was fine. As it turned out, the execution wasn't to be. That, that plan didn't work out. The getting hold of a main yard, though, that's a different story. And we're going to sort of step-by-step step learn what Jack's thinking is and how he's going to go about it. Sophie is a brig. That means she has two masts. The The rear mast, the rearmost of those two is called the main mast. On a brig like Sophie, that rear main mast has two main sails. It has a what's called a fore and aft main sail, which has its long edge uh, held tight to the mast and the sail sets like a wing on its end. And that's great when you're sailing into the wind, when you're maneuvering at close quarters coastally, that's fine. It's not great for making quick passages when the wind is behind you. And for that job, you need a different mainsail. You need the square mainsail. And that looks more like everybody's traditional idea of a sailing ship sail. Um, it's, of course, square. It's set on a yard. That's a long wooden spar that kind of is set roughly across the ship from side to side, and the sailors hung below it in the image that we all know. Now, Jack wants to do lots of fast passages. He wants to chase prizes, and prizes, when he encounters them, are probably going to turn before the wind and run away downwind. So he needs good sailing performance in this downwind direction. His main yard is too weak for the job. And we've already heard in a few different ways that the Sophie's petty officers are a conservative bunch, we know that Mr. Brown prizes um, naval officers who husband their resources and don't waste stuff. So nobody's going to want to help him get a stronger main yard just to fool around with. So let's see what happens. All right. Good. Thanks, Ian. Boy, I, you know, I think so many times I know I, when I first came to Master and Commander, I just really couldn't make head nor tails. Uh, and a lot of times still can't make heads or tails <laughs> of all the nautical jargon. And and what pains my heart is when people, as we talked about an episode or two ago, say, oh, well, there's too many nautical terms. I couldn't make it through. And so I, I think we're, we're trying to help for people who know all these things. Hey, you know, sail along with us. For those of you who don't, sail along with us. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, sl slightly confusingly, in most Patrick O'Brien editions, there's a nice um, engraving in the front of the book, which right. is labeled the sails of a square ship hung out to dry in a calm, which is all fine, except that the little diagram in the front of the book has three masts and has square mainsails on all three masts. Sophie is a brig. It doesn't really show this four and a half main and doesn't show the importance of the uh, of the square mainsail. So it's a, it's a bit unlucky. You'd have a little bit of digging for yourself. So as as you said, Ian, we're you know we're back aboard the Sophie. 
they've you know turned before the wind. They've got the wind coming from behind them. And now they're saying, you know, let's take that front to back that, you know, that four and a half mainsail down and put this square mainsail up. The one that Jack is thinking that yard that's holding this thing. Yeah, I, I don't like that. It's not strong enough. So um, they're picking up speed. They start shooting forward and the mainsail is as taut as a drum, O'Brien tells us. And Jack even asked the sailmaker if they can get some more cloth on the sail. You know, he talks about a deep goring leech. Don't need to know what that is. He's just sort uh-huh. of saying, you know, can we put some more material? Jack wants to increase the force on this sail to, you know, deal with this yard that he's not too fond of here. And he looks at the sea and, and the way it's running by the ship. And then he keeps looking back up at that main yard. And, and this, you know, this piece of wood, as you say, Ian, that's holding this mainsail, it's like 30 feet long. Um, it's maybe seven inches thick in the middle. It tapers down to about three inches thick at the end. And Jack thinks to himself, like, you know, this is you know, more like a crowjack than a main yard. And, and you know, he's thought this several times. And of course, I'm looking at this going, crowjack? <laughs> Right, and a, a, a crowjack is a fairly flimsy thing. It's the uh, the spar that holds the bottom corners of the mizzen topsail, because um, in a boat with a fore and aft mizzen sail, you don't necessarily have a spar there, so you've got to put a little spindly little supporting spar. A crowjack's not a proper man's idea of a spar at all. He's looking for a proper main yard that's got some beef to it. Now, once the Sophie reaches her top speed, the mainsail's taking the full force of the wind, and there's there's lots and lots of pressure there. Um, Jack is listening and he hears it groaning. Now, the carpenter and the bosun and perhaps Lieutenant Dillon are all hearing that groan and thinking, well, this doesn't sound great. Jack is hearing that groan and thinking, yeah, maybe my plan is going to work. So Jack's looking up at this yard. Um, The officers and most of the experienced hands are looking at the yard as well. Before the wind, the ship was quieter because you're kind of, you're sailing away from the wind. So the apparent wind is a bit less, but still there's all this pressure in the sail and the men are murmuring. And Mike, we, we hear this phrase that we're going to hear quite a few times in the future books about Jack Aubrey and his seamanship. One of the crew says, he'll carry all away if he cracks on so. And O'Brien says, Jack did not hear it. He was quite unconscious of the tension around him, far away in his calculations of the opposing forces, not mathematical calculations by any means. Oh, in, in parenthesis, he doesn't like math yet. He's coming to be a mathematician much later in his life. So for now, all of his calculations are instinctive. Uh, not mathematical calculations by any means, but rather sympathetic. The calculations of a rider with a new horse between his knees and a dark hedge coming. All right, there's a great bit of characterization for Jack. And this idea of Jack imagining himself as the rider on a powerful horse, we're going to come back to that again and again and again. It's going to be one of O'Brien's favorite motifs, I think, for Jack's character. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as, as, as a rider, I'm married to a horse whisperer, I can tell you, it's not the physics and the trigonometry <laughs> that, uh-uh. that you're grabbing up there, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh. So Jack goes below once again. He's looking out of his beautiful stern window. They pass Cape Mola. Cape Mola is the big cape that's right at the entrance to Port Mahon. So they're, they're a fairly long way to being back home again. Um, the wind is going to be deflected by the coast, and that's going to increase the thrust. And there's even more pressure now going to be building on this square sail. And the text says Jack, Jack was quite sort of insouciant about this. Very quietly, it says, he whistled De Vieni, reflecting 
if I make a success of this, and if I make a mint of money, several hundred guineas, say, the first thing I shall do after paying off is go to Vienna, to the opera. And Mike, I love this reference to Dave Vieni. Um, he's talking about Mozart, I'm pretty sure. There are two arias in two different Mozart operas that begin with the text of Dave Vieni, which means come. Um, there's one called Dave Vieni non tardar, uh, come don't be late, which is beautiful. It's in Marriage of Figaro. And we know from all of our other reading that Marriage of Figaro was a favorite reference. Patrick O'Brien. But Mike, you, you found this the, the reference in Don Giovanni as well. And I think this is even better. Don Giovanni, this, this opera with the kind of light comic side and the dark foreboding side with this guy who's at once um, a red-blooded seducer of women and on the other side, um, a superstitious um, mortal doomed by his own you know, self-aggrandizement. It's a really, really interesting kind of duality in this opera. Maybe if you want to say Don Giovanni's version of De Vieni is the one, partly because it's a very, very tuneful tune. You can imagine Jack singing it, partly because it's a romantic man singing about, you know, come to the window, and partly because it sets up the Jack Aubrey happy-go-lucky side of Don Giovanni. And that's going to be in contrast to the broody, dark, maybe Stephen Maturin side of the rest of the story of Don Giovanni. So I love it. Let's let's play a little bit of De Vieni alla Finestra from Don Giovanni. So there you go. A little snatch of Don Giovanni there. Mike gets a really, really great reference. It, it is. It is. And, and you know, it's another one of these opportunities that O'Brien gives us to just dig in. And for yeah. fun, not, you know, we, we, we've had some great chats recently on the Patrick O'Brien appreciation page about literary criticism. Not, not, yeah. <laughs> neither of us are, are literary critics, but we do love these characters and we love these references and love to think, you know, kind of what is... What does this all mean? What might it mean? What's going on here as, as we journey together with Stephen and Jack? So, uh, you know, Dylan comes to the cabin to report that the wind is increasing. And I think he's, you know, ever more urgently asking, you know, for permission to reduce sail. And Jack says, no. But uh, then he thinks to himself, you know, I can't, you know, Dylan's got the watch right now. He's up there all alone. I'm making him you know, proxy for this decision. And he says, you know what? I'll be up on deck in two minutes. But he's not. He's up on deck in one minute, just in time to hear this ominous, rending crack. <laughs> and bam. So Jack is furiously giving orders. Um, they get this mainsail down the yard. This main yard that he's talking is hopelessly sprung. You know, it's completely given out here. And Jack looks out and says, Lay her for the harbor, Mr. Dillon, if you please. Boom, mainsail, and everything she can carry. There is not a minute to lose. <laughs> so some really lovely things paying off there. The, the crew were right. Something did carry away from him cracking on. Um, he's going to get to go back here and see if he can 
make his move to get a better yard from Mr. Brown. And th- th- this is crazy. This is Jack all in one day, taking his ship out, wrecking a critical part of it and bringing it back. Crazy like a fox, this guy is. Right, right. 45 minutes later, Jack has the sprung yard dragging, kind of being pulled behind a boat that's taking him back to the dockyard to see Mr. Brown here. You know, and after he's out of the boat, one of the crew members that's been rowing in here says, well, there's the fleet's own brazen smiling serpent. And, and he, you know, he's, he's watching Jack run up the stairs and, you know, he says he brings the poor old Sophie in first time he could ever set foot on her with barely a yard standing at all. Her timbers all crazy, half the ship's company pumping for dear life, and every man on deck, the live long day, dear nose with never a pause for the smell of a pipe. And he runs up them old steps, smiling like King George was up there to knight him. And yeah, so he's, you know, he's, you know, we got a little view into the crew's view of Jack right now. And, and one of his mates there in the boat says, yeah, and a short time for dinner is will never be made up. And, and we've got this very young Mr. Babington who, you know, in his little young voice, you know, O'Brien tells us, you know, musters as much courage as he can manage saying silence, <laughs> trying to preserve the captain's dignity. But, but I can't help wondering, you know, if he isn't a little bit confused too, you know, what the heck is going on here? Yeah, he's he's seen this, what looks like wanton destruction aboard the ship. He can see that the crew are out of sorts. This new captain, is, is he acting with authority? Is he is he just a chancer? Um, by the way, I, I love as well the fact that we hear about this in the, this reported dialogue coming from the member of the ship's crew pulling on the oar. Again, a thing that O'Brien's going to come back to time and time again, giving us a little bit of action, but adding character to it by having yes. a, you know, a secondary character play it out for us and describe it for us. So here we go. Jack's plan starts to become visible to us. He tells Mr. Brown, uh, you can do me an essential service. And he says, well, the convoy ship is in. That's the ship called the Fanny. I, he needs to sail tonight. He needs his main yard condemned and a new one issued. Uh, Brown is shocked. What's going on here? Uh, Jack says, I'm bringing back the two 12-pounders since ordnance is now under your purview. And he's greasing Mr. Brown up a little bit by saying, I know that you're now in charge and Mr. Head is now your subordinate. Uh, he don't, I don't want the Sophie to be overburdened with his heavy cannon. And Mr. Brown says, with all my heart. Um, but Brown reports that there's no spar in the yard small enough for the Sophie. And Jack is on top of this right away. He says, yes, that's true. But the Genereur, this ship that we mentioned last time in connection with Cochrane, the Genereur has three spare foretop gallant yards. And the foretop gallant yard would normally be smaller than a main yard, but that's the foretop gallant yard of a big ship would work, we think, perhaps at least in terms of its diameter as the main yard for a small brig. So let's see. Mr. Brown says, okay, I'll give you one on trial and see if it fits. So, you know, they, they're, they're getting the spar to the ship and and Mr. Lamb, the carpenter, just marvels at it. He says, now that's what I call a real spar. 43 foot as clean as a whistle. You'll spread a mainsail as a mainsail on that, sir. <laughs> so I think I think the carpenter, Mr. Lamb, is starting to get with the program here. <laughs> Jack directs him on how to bring the spar aboard and how to install it. Earlier, you know, Jack was not only happy. He wasn't happy about the main yard. He also wasn't happy about how it was rigged. And now he's telling them how he wants this one rigged here. 
Uh, Mr. Brown says, yeah, that's that's way too big. You know, you're going to have to saw off the ends and, and, and a good bit more. But Jack kind of, you know, takes it his own way. He directs the bosun and he gives him this approach that the bosun thinks would only be done inside Bedlam. In other words, he's only somebody in a mental institution would come up with this thing here. And instead of doing, as Brown had said, to cut all this extreme amount off, Jack tells the carpenter just to trim the ends, you know, in a very little bit until it has just enough here. And Lamb doesn't get it at first, but then he is amazed. He sees where Jack is going with what he's got the bosun doing, what he's got him doing. And with their work complete, Jack says, you know, go ahead and sway it up, pop her up, because I'm going to shore. And so in the middle of it, he's he's gotten it just right. And then he leaves. You know, he leaves and says, you know, remember, we've got to be ready to sail by the evening gun. And then he turns to Dylan. Dylan, who's, you know, I'm sure thinking about my God, you know, I kept telling him about this and he's done this. And now what are we doing here? He says to Dylan, by the way, put all the women ashore. You know, as he says, women are capital things in port, but they will not do it. See, so Dylan, you know, he's like, OK, Jack doesn't want to do this, doesn't want to upset the whole crew. Dylan, you do this while I'm gone. And he takes the boat back to the dockyard. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, what, what's happened? It's, it's a really great maneuver. By the way, I don't know exactly that I've got this right. So if anybody's listening that, you know, the intricate details of, of square rigging a ship, get in touch and tell us. Here's what I think is happening. Um, the normal way that you would rig this main yard was the, would be that you'd put the slings and all the braces and everything all in place, and then it would be there. But what Jack's actually saying is he wants to trim it so that it, he takes just enough off the end so that it will just fit and no more. So he, he hoists it just in its slings without all of the, any of the rest of the gubbins so he can see exactly how wide is wide enough but not too wide so it won't fit. And while it's lying there in the slings, he has the carpenter go through this kind of business. So he's done this, what you might call the switcheroo maneuver, very, very quickly, crudely hoisting up this, um, this yard, temporarily hanging it there, trimming it so it's just small enough but no smaller, planing the yard ends, all this business with the stencil boom end irons and the stop cleats is what he's doing there. Um, he gets himself as a result in really short order, a strong new main yard as long, that is to say, wide as it possibly can be and still fit. And it's kind of carrying everybody along with him. And I love he's using the, the energy and the charisma of a buoyant, young, gung-ho captain. And he's carried everyone along with him. Mr. Brown doesn't spot the right moment to so to say, hold on a second, young man. The bosun and the carpenter are in no position to stop him. Dylan, I think, is just standing there open-mouthed. And it really helps him that he can use that great Jack Aubrey catchphrase. He says, there's not a moment to lose. Right, right. Well, at, at the dark yard, it's, it's interesting, as you said, Ian, you know, kind of this charisma, this this way that Jack's kind of, you know, completely in command of these things. Mr. Brown, you know, now says, well, Jack's going to be really happy that he took, you know, Mr. Brown's advice with this new spar, because if he hadn't, it would have carried away in the first puff of wind. But in fact, as, as you just said, and as we know, he hadn't taken Brown's advice at all. <laughs> so, um, and, and he's, you know, rigged it in this way that's going to make it work now. But Jack doesn't even reply to that remark he just says you know mr brown i'll take those duettos now you know i'll i'll take that music you were gonna get me <laughs> and and he says and, yeah. and by the way i'm about to go fetch my friend and can't wait to bring him around for you to meet him and introduce him to mrs brown the next time we're in mahan so he continues to like march forward carry everybody now smiling and perhaps scratching the back of their heads with him here 
Yeah, and it, 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 what what is his thoughts now turn to the, the social side of things? He's got to go ashore. He's got to organize a dinner. He's got to sit down with Masha. It's like this, this, he's having a day of days. He's really, really on fire. Very opposite, I think, from the, all the uncertainty and all the kind of doggedness in Stephen yes. Matlin's mind. Jack Aubrey has absolutely hit his stride here. I think it's really, really great. He runs back to the boat. He's sweating. He says, get over quickly to the crowd steps. Give way, he says, like heroes. Give way is the order that you were given a rowboat to say, okay, row your oars. Give way is nautical speak for row. You give way like heroes. He arrives at the crowd steps with six minutes to spare. He apologizes to Stephen for ratting or maybe appearing to rat on him for dinner. Has two crewmen come with him and the rest of them rode offshore to deliver them from temptation. Now he's got this great kind of cornucopia of ship's crew. He doesn't want to lose any of them. Um, and by the way, that nice little nod to the Lord's Prayer there. Um, he makes a few quick purchases. Well, he wants to make a few quick purchases. He tells Stephen they'll have to wait until their first convoy stop to buy really decent provisions. So for the time being, it's going to be kind of sailors' rations. But never mind. He has one seaman go away with Stephen to get his dunnage, his luggage, and the cello. And he, Mike, I love this moment. He quietly gives Stephen this advance on his pay, saying, "You may, you may choose not to appear particular. So you might want to go along with this custom of accepting an advance on your pay." Very diplomatic of Jack, and Stephen accepts it just well enough. So he says, "Okay, I'll take a few guineas." It's a, a really, really lovely moment, and that, that they're almost all set. They, they are Jack. You know, he takes the other seamen with him. And, and says, you know, we'll, we'll meet you back at 6.15. And O'Brien tells us that at 6.15, they're already shoving off in a very crowded boat with all the men and the cello and the bags and Stephen. And when they reach the Sophie, they make sure that Stephen gets up the side. A, a brilliant idea, as we'll come to find out. Yeah. And Jack shows Stephen to the cabin. He apologizes that he has to go immediately on deck, you know, because they're, they're in a real hurry here. Jack turns to Mr. Dillon. Mr. Dillon, he said, is all well? Dillon's reply, all's well, sir. The 12 merchantmen have made their signal. Very good, says Jack. Fire a gun for them and make sail if you please. I believe we shall just get down the harbour with top gallants if this fag end of a breeze still holds. And then out of the lee of the Cape, we may make a respectable offing. So make sail. And by then it will be time to set the watch a long day, Mr. Dillon, Dillon says. A long day, sir. At one time, says Jack, I thought it would never come to an end. And Mike, the, the, the end of a long day, the end of a long and really, really rewarding chapter. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, you know, an amazingly long, <laughs> an amazingly good <laughs> chapter. And, and I'm sort of wondering in my own mind now, you know, we're we're kind of upbeat and feeling really good here at the moment. But I'm thinking back. So hold on. All told, stem to start. Is this an auspicious or inauspicious beginning for Jack Aubrey in his first command? You know, yeah, I know where Jack's head is, perhaps, but I'm kind of wondering where everybody else's head is. Yeah. I, I, and it's funny, isn't it? That in, in lots of other stories, you'd think a story of, you know, scrambling out of the harbor, breaking a key piece of equipment, coming back in a hurry and just about getting your friend on board. That does, doesn't, that sounds like a setup for a disaster. But actually with Jack Aubrey and all his kind of charisma and bounce, it actually sounds like, yeah, he, he played his cards and he played them well and his day ended well. It's great. We, this certainly feels like we're ending on a high at the end of this chapter. At the same time, we're thinking about Stephen and Jack. You know, there are going to be these two really relative strangers 
holed up in this tiny little cabin as, as Jack's trying to work out his first command. You know, the first thing, you know, boom, here it is. Here's the cabin. Got to go on deck. Um, and, and, you know, with this, you know, up and down that we've seen a little bit of that, we've seen now kind of multiple sides of both of them. And they do seem very different in a lot of ways. They've both been slighted by each other. And, and we know that they could also do each other a lot of good, right? Stephen gets a place, a chance to see some of the world. Jack gets a surgeon. And, and perhaps more importantly, the company of a peer or at least appear on this trip where, you know, Stevens his guest and, and not a reporting officer. Yeah, and that, that might be important, but it also makes him a bit a bit unusual as captains in the Navy go. Um, and, and meanwhile, Mike, uh, what about the war? This is supposed to be a book about sailing ships in the Napoleonic Wars. What, what about the French and the Spanish? Uh, we're 86 pages in. We've had barely a sniff of an admiral or a prize or cannons or a mission or coded letters. I'm... Surely something's going on here. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think Hornblower would be in this situation, right? <laughs> no, right. No, that'd be that'd be powder smoke already. And and by the way, Dylan, we don't know much about him apart from this uneasiness between him and Stephen. Uh, we know he seems really capable. He seems to have been a little bit ignored by Jack on his first outing. He hasn't had much agency. He hasn't been able to be very resourceful. And. Uh, Jack said Dylan probably has a better call on being a commander than Jack has. So maybe there's going to be some jealousy there. And what about this Irish connection? There are lots and lots of questions still to be answered here, Mike. Yeah, it, it is amazing that, you know, in two short, well, not too short, in two chapters, you know, O'Brien has really set the board up for us. And, and I don't know that there's any way to find out what happens next other than to pull chapter three down off the shelf next week. Ian, what would you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Mike, there's not a moment to lose. wants two new cannons and a new main yard yeah me too me too man (laughs) (laughs) that's right it was on my christmas list right that's what i told santa